and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you would share it. Share it on social media. We give a shout out to LinkedIn uh, at the end of this podcast and LinkedIn is a great place to share this content. So if you enjoy today's conversation, go on to LinkedIn, maybe tag our guest and tag myself and let's see if we can share this conversation there or on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, wherever it is your social. We appreciate those of you who continue to share these conversations. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach when I'm not recording this podcast, which means I get to work with all kinds of elite performers in the corporate world and in the sports world, and I help coach them. If you are interested in learning more about me and my work, feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and you can always email me, brian at blevinson.com. Now to today's guest. Kip Watson is a former professional football player. She was an elite gymnast when she was a kid. She works in the world of sports psychology. And I think you're just going to find her to be a really thoughtful, intentional human being who lives with spirit, who lives with emotion, and who thinks about her mindset on a daily basis. So Kip is going to be vulnerable in this conversation. She's going to share what she's learned and what she's continuing to work on with herself and why she is so passionate about making an impact with people in and outside of the sports world. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Kip Watson. Kip, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. We were connected by, yeah. Jake, by Jake Thompson. Yes. Uh, Jake has a cool podcast called Compete Every Day. So if people are unfamiliar with that, please go and check out Jake's podcast. And when Jake connected us, he said, you know, Kip is a competitor. She is somebody who's interested in sports psychology and it plays in that sandbox. So he thought it'd be yeah. good for us to have a conversation. And where I'd love to start is I know gymnastics was a big part of your upbringing. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'd love to find out why was that? What was it like growing up? And, and tell me about your experience uh, doing gymnastics. Man, this is going to date me, but that's okay. Um, 
I remember being very inspired in 1972 by Olga Corbett and then again in 1976 by the perfection of Nadia Comaneci. And, um, you know, my parents were really good. They, they let me try a lot of different sports. And so I love the fact that they let me do that. Um, you know, I was actually doing ice skating. Um, I did tennis. I, I actually wanted to be in speed skating, but I was also taking dance and gymnastics just recreationally at that point. Um, but after I saw that, saw those two ladies compete, it really inspired me, I think, more to focus in on that. Um, and so actually more of a late bloomer. I didn't actually start competitive gymnastics until I was 11. Um, but that's really what inspired me. Now, this may get into my story a little bit later, but you know, I grew up on uh, the Ohio State University athletics. Like my dad took me to basketball games, football games, hockey games, and I wanted to play football. Like I watched Archie Griffin run the ball. And that's really what I was like, dad, I want to do that. But you know, back then they didn't let women do that. So gymnastics just came, you know, kind of the place where I gravitated, where I naturally excelled kind of early on. Did you have siblings? I had a younger brother and he's three years younger and he played a lot of soccer. He, he went on actually to be a home golf pro. Um, so golf was very big in my family. That was the first sport I tried when I was three because my dad was a collegiate golfer. Um, so golf was very big in my family. Like our summer vacation evolved around a golf tournament every summer. <laughs> and, and tell me a bit of, more about mom and dad. What were they like? Uh, what did they do for a living? What was, what was the environment like that you grew up in? Um, you know, we were the classic middle class of the middle class. Um, I grew up in a, a pretty affluent neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio. Um, my dad was a professor at Ohio State for 43 years. And my what, did he, mom, what did he study? Ed Sykes. So I, I'm pretty much a chip off the old block. And uh, the science that I use in my sports psychology practice, I first learned from my dad. Um, he taught it at Ohio State. He used it with a number of their sports team, predominantly with the golf teams there. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, how I got started learning about it and using it. Now, he really stayed more in an educational setting where I went more into a very clinical, you know, direct setting with clients. And um, sorry, I interrupted you when you were going to talk yeah. about mom. So what about mom? Uh, mom, uh, you know, early on mom was staying home mom. Uh, and then she went back to school. She got her second master's degree <clears throat> while we were in grade school and she was a law librarian. So she worked for a law firm there in Columbus, Ohio for a long time. So sports was a part of your ethos growing up and it sounds like education yeah. as well. They both went on to grad school. So yeah. Uh, where was the focus from their perspective as you and your brother were growing up? Education, for sure. Um, that was paramount. There was no question you were going to college. Um, my brother naturally excelled at golf and did really well with that. And um, so I think his life really 
really kind of focused and evolved around that. He has since left that and he's uh, works as a CPA now. Um, it, I, you know, I think my family was very sports oriented. Like I grew up, you know, like my dad took me to a lot of, as a spectator, as a fan, as a part of Ohio State athletics, you can't really get bigger than that. Like, you know, when you're around that. And then my uncle, or my uncle is really my dad's cousin is Tex Winter. And Tex Winter, for people who don't know, um, was the offensive coordinator for the Bulls in their, in their heyday in the 90s. And then he, he um, was under Phil Jackson there again with the Lakers. And so while I was growing up, he was the head coach for Northwestern basketball. So we got to hang around, you know, Uncle Fred for, uh, you know, my early years and, and watching him and being around him and then watching him even at the Bulls. I got to see him more often when he was at the Bulls. Just really, I think, impacted me um, in watching the way he handled high egos, big egos, and a variety of characters um, to to want to be a part of that. And not being able to play football, was that something as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old that frustrated you? Was there yeah. any sense yeah. of like women empowerment and like this idea, like, wait, why can't I play with the boy? Like what was going on yes. in your head? Oh, for sure. Um, and I would have to say both my grand, my grandmothers, both my grandmothers, while stayed in their traditional roles, were very sports oriented. Um, it was that, you know, uh, before we went on air, I talked about the Reds, the Cincinnati Reds. And that was my mom's mom. Like that was her love. Like that we watched, went to the games. That was her thing. And my dad's mom actually taught a class on football to other women, like back in like the early, well, I guess this would have been the late thirties, early forties. So that women wouldn't be stupid, wouldn't look stupid when they were talking to their husbands about football. Hmm. And so while she never played the game, she knew about the game. She was a fan of the game. And um, golly, she even had um, Randy White of the Dallas Cowboys, her favorite player. His On the family mantle of pictures, his picture was like front and center. Um, I was able to get a picture autographed for her and boy, oh my God, that was her treasured possession. And he knocked the rest of us off the mantle. Like he became front and center. So, you know, that love of sport and the love of football just was around me my whole life. And I can remember in junior high kind of tugging at, um, you know, my other friends at school, like, well, come on, I know I can play. Like I want to play. And even a couple of the, you know, junior high guys would call me little brute. And so they knew I wanted to play, but that just wasn't, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, that would, that would not happen. It happens now, thank goodness, but you don't see that happening then. What were mom and dad saying to you when you were saying, Hey, I, I want to play football and, you know, I want to get after it and, and, and do that. Well, I think they were very effective at distracting me or pointing me towards things that you can do. You know, you can't do that. So why don't we try this? 
you know, let's get involved with this. And then gymnastics kind of took over and I did that for eight years. So that kind of became my life during um, the rest of my junior high, high school years. So let's get into gymnastics a little bit. So I think from age 11, you said, so eight years would be 11 to 18. Yeah. Yeah. And, and gymnastics for those that don't know is physically demanding, emotionally demanding, mentally demanding. Um, you mentioned a lot of I think Russian gymnastics and sort of mm -hmm. the structure and um, the way that they train. So I'm just, mm -hmm. I would love to find out what was your experience like with gymnastics? Um, it was, it was indeed structured. It was, you know, four or five days a week. Um, it's not like you hear now um, the competitive team I was on, like, you know, I mean, yeah, there were weeks we did 20, 25 hours in the gym. Um, and, the, and the summers were every single day. It was Monday through Friday, 730 to noon every, every, every week, which really curtails summer activities when you're in the gym first thing in the morning. Um, you had to go to bed early a lot. You have to be, you know, I think gymnastics, there is no other sport where you really have to be everything. You have to have endurance. You have to have speed. You have to have strength. You have to have flexibility. Um, and I so appreciate what it did for me physically, but I think more so just the hours of disciplining yourself towards a goal, an individual goal and a team goal. Um, it's you, there is a lot of sacrifice that goes with that lifestyle when you're young, cause you can only do it really a certain during a certain age. Um, although it is nice to see there are some gymnasts that are doing it a lot longer. Um, and the level of difficulty is amazing to me now. Um, but I, I think the discipline, yes, there were things that were not good about that environment. Um, there was a period of time once I got to a certain level of uh, competing where they, they did weigh us in and weigh us out after every practice. And that set a lot of us up for a struggle, me included. Um, you know, I struggled for a number of years with food and body image and weight and all that kind of stuff. Cause there was that moment where it was suggested that you, ah, you might want to lose about five pounds. Um, well, you know, I really didn't need to at that time. Um, but you listen to your coaches and you do what they say, but then you, they don't tell you how to do it. So you just start restricting. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, so that wasn't a good part of it. Um, and I think, Two, I achieved a high level of success really fast. And when you're 11, 12, 13 years old and you have success early on, then there's an expectation to uphold or maintain that success. And I didn't handle that very well either. I didn't have the mental skills or the tools or the beliefs um, to be able to handle that too well. Were you gifted at an early age? Like, did it come easy to you? It seemed to be. Yeah. And I, you know, I, this is, and this is why I do what I do now in terms of assessing somebody's um, mental intangibles. 
Um, yes, it did come fairly easy to me early on. I, I excelled really fast in those uh, early, what they call levels now. Um, and that in my, after my first year of competing, the gym, uh, the coaches voted me into the gym's hall of fame. Yeah. And you were 11 and I would imagine there's girls that have been there <laughs> for seven years. Right. right. right? Uh, right. And so I, and I, you know, it, what an honor, like, you know, I still have the plaque, but what do you, where do you go from there? And um, and I, I did think, wow, I've only been here a year. Why, you know, that should be a, a lifetime achievement type of award. And I actually got to speak at um, the USA Gymnastics National Convention um, last year. And my coach who gave it to me was there. And we talked about that because, you know, when I speak, I, I use that story. Um, and I, it did set me up for not really like, how do you deal with expectations that you perceive that are on you? Nobody's actually said to you, like, you got to maintain this level of success. But when you receive an award like that, there is this thing, and especially in a young mind to go, okay, well, I got to maintain that. I got to win. I have to win. And it created a very like high, high, low, low type of career for me because I didn't know how to handle it. It's so interesting because I'm a parent, you're a parent. And when I'm around parents, there's often this focus on building confidence through winning. And, you know, our kid needs to win and then they'll feel more confident. And I was just talking to a client the other day who's, you know, a CEO and the person was talking about their kid and should their kid go out for a team, even though that the kid will probably not make the team and probably fail. And it's amazing because as adults, we often talk about the value of failure and the value of learning and using it to grow and discomfort. But when it comes to our right. own kids, it, it, it seems like it's a harder, it's a harder deal for parents. And yeah. my, my kids are younger than yours. And so I'm curious to learn about your parenting style because I still have so much to learn. Um, but it, it seems as though I mean, it's kind of like the child star problem when we have kids that are stars at eight or 10 or 12 years old. And then like, what do they do the rest of their life to find meaning and fulfillment? And if you're always using quote unquote success as a barometer for your own identity and your own happiness, you run into the problem of confusing pleasure with happiness and the pleasure of winning and getting a trophy or the pleasure of, you know, getting into the hall of fame as being that's it. And that can be rather empty. Whereas I was talking to a division one soccer player the other day and I was like, why do you play? And she said to me, I just love the fulfillment of knowing that I did the best that I could and, yeah. and like seeing the gains that I'm making. And so the outcome isn't, you know, that's like gravy, but it's not the, the reason why I play. And yeah. I'm very pro winning. I'm very pro competition, but <laughs> yeah. you need to have a, have clarity around why you do what you do. And then also where your fulfillment comes from. And I think if the outcome is the only thing that's going to give you fulfillment, especially in sports, you're asking for quite a roller coaster ride because there's yeah. always going to be someone who's going to compete with you and you're not going to win all the time. 
Well, you're so right about that. And, and the, I have to win or I must win or that expectation of that or nothing sets people up for a lot of disappointment, anger, anxiety, and actually creating the very scenario they don't want. Um, and, and that's hard because yes, as athletes, as performers, as coaches, you know, that is one of the goals, right? We, we, of course we want to win. It is a pursuit or an outcome we're going for, but you, you correctly um, pointed out that really those incremental goals, the process goals towards mastery, and then kind of let the results take care of themselves, they will, you're going to have a much more satisfying experience and probably what I call more consistency of high performance, staying in that zone. Like I really rarely use the, the concept of peak performance, but I want consistency across your career. And I think that is one belief, right? Are we pursuing winning? Or are we pursuing mastering our sport? Okay. If I pursue mastery, the winning will come. And we've both been around golf with you, with your, your, your dad and your brother. And yeah. I've, I've worked with a ton of golfers. And so with golf, I always say like, all right, do you want to be consistent? Because almost every golfer right. says, oh, I want to be consistent. And I go, okay, if you want to be consistent, here's what you do. Consistently suck, right? Like <laughs> consistently go out and shoot bad scores. That's the best way for you to be consistent. Right. And so one of the things I always talk about, forget consistency of outcome, but think about consistency of process. And yes. Like, let's really drive home what consistency is. Consistency is your routine. Consistency is using your breath. Consistency with is, is, is how you talk to yourself, right? Those are where consistency lies. But you even look at Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy or Jordan Spieth or Annika Sorenstein or whoever you want to look at, and they're not going to make every cut. Like, there's no way right. to have consistency of outcome, but we can have consistency of process. And I feel like that gets lost because athletes always want consistency. And I always tell them, look, you can, you, you can be a football team and the Miami dolphins right now are consistent week to week. They're consistently losing. Right. And, and that is consistency. It's doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same outcome over and over again. So I think when people say consistency, I always bring them to like, Hey, how do we get into a consistent process, a consistent yeah. mindset, um, a consistent way of doing things and shifting the narrative from consistent outcome to consistent process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, golf. Yeah. I work with a number of golfers as well. And there's so much about winning in golf that they have zero control over. And so it really is a focus about their process and even from shot to shot. But and I think a lot of golfers go in and they practice different segments of their game. But really, when you go play, it's got to be a fluidity of the whole thing. Absolutely. And that is, uh, that is one mental game. And there, is, there are innate brain codes that do better at that sport um, than, say, others. And actually, Sergio Garcia, Tiger Woods, they actually have brain codes that that I don't often see on the tour, but what they did was focus on their process. I think the consistency of the process and they've both managed a high level of success. When you say brain codes, what do you mean by that? So I have a, a, a scientific process of um, assessing the intangibles. We call it in sport, we call it your intangibles. So there's tangibles of like, 
height, weight, speed, wingspan, what, you know, all the physical stuff. And then intangibles is how you're mentally wired, looking at your mental processing. And if there's any kind of psychopathology that may be going on that impacts that innate wiring um, and what it, what it creates or what it, there are 16 different brain codes based on really four mental innate processes that we each have. And it creates through neuroscience, we know kind of where there's also physical and mental kind of strengths and weaknesses, strengths and challenges, depending on your sport of choice. Because different sports and even different positions within sports require a, a different mental gift set, right? Mental muscles. You have mental muscles. Like in field sports, football, soccer, uh, lacrosse, you got to be able to read, react, and respond quickly, right? It's a game of crisis. Well, that is a mental muscle. has nothing to do with your physicality or your physical ability, but that's a mental wiring that either some people are more gifted at than others. But yes, it can be developed if it's not your natural gift. So just to understand, you're saying by putting someone through an fMRI machine and looking at their brain makeup, you can actually see the different regions that are lit up or, or walk me through what these brain codes are and how do you yeah. study them and how do you research them and how do you understand how they work? Yeah, well, my process is really simple. It involves an intake form. It's rather lengthy, but um, I'm looking at all the different areas of your life that may impact your mental wiring, um, even sleep, right? Impacts mental wiring, how you're hydrated, your nutrition, your family background, your spiritual beliefs. Um, and then I have an online assessment that people take that looks at specifically four different mental processes that we have. Um, kind of how you get energized, real simply, how you get energized, how you take in the information around you, how you make decisions on that information. And then one um, that we call kind of a lifestyle choice where it's one, someone who may be sort of more organized and systematic versus somebody who's kind of like, whatever, <laughs> and a little more disorganized, um, just as a, an example. So looking at that, and then I do a, a interview with each person too where I'm asking them a bunch of questions to see where they're at with certain mental skills and life skills. And then I put that information together and um, yes, create what I call a brain code and give them their strengths and weaknesses depending on sport, sometimes position within a sport. And then we look at stress management based on brain code. And for my young people, I always give them a career report based on brain code too. Because one thing we know is that your athletic career is temporary. We just don't know how temporary. So you mentioned Tiger Woods and, and Sergio, yeah. that their brain codes actually are not necessarily that similar right. to the rest of the tour. So if you were working with somebody who maybe their brain code doesn't, it's not a clean fit for what their task is, how do you develop that person? How do you nurture whatever their nature is? Um, well, it, it, and that's often what I do after we kind of discover what it, whatever their brain code is. So, um, one example I kind of gave you, so, um, a lot of people 
can do okay kind of middle school, high school, even kind of at the collegiate level in a sport like football, um, if they're more that systematic, organized, planful type person. They like to know ahead of time what's going to happen. Um, but when you start talking about even collegiate level and beyond, um, that particular brain code or mental process becomes a challenge. That was the only difference, for instance, between Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning at the time they got drafted. Um, that one mental process is a huge difference in a game like football because you absolutely have to read, react, and make a decision within a fraction of a second. And if you can't do that fast enough, football is going to be a challenge for you. And that was my challenge when I played football. I had to work about three times as hard just to be average. So there are visual drills that you can do, visual training, and I'm and I'm hurt, you know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. They do it a lot with wide receivers, but I actually had an uh, offensive lineman do it, um, which isn't really common, but I needed that particular part of his mental muscle. He needed to be able to react off the line quicker. And while it's just like we're talking about fractions of a second, um, that is something he had to improve on. And he did. And he went from playing Juco to being at OU, playing football at OU. But he had to, he had to develop that, change that, get better at that. So there's things obviously you can do just by playing the game that gets better. But you got to be able to do some stuff off the field. Um, I want to I go back to your childhood, but yeah. we're going we're gonna to get there in a minute. Because uh, yeah. I know that there's more to unpack, especially as you talk about body image and uh, yeah. potentially some of the dark side of being very disciplined and working very hard. But you mentioned playing football. And first of all, a lot of females never play football. Um, right. So, and you played professionally. And, yes. and you're also talking about it wasn't easy for you, that you had to work three times as yeah. hard to be successful at that. So walk me through the drive to play professional football, especially I think you played when you were in, in your 40s. So it's not like you're in your 20s. Right, right. What, why, why are you doing that? What, why go through that? And especially why do something that you know is not something that comes easy to you or naturally? Naturally to, to me. Well, it, it, yeah, like growing up, on Buckeye football, it's always something you want to do, male or female. Like, you know, I was always out there in the yard playing with the guys. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just what you did. Um, so, yeah, when I was 40, 41, um, I randomly met one of the players who most people now know, uh, Jen Welter, who was the first uh, NFL football coach, female football coach. Um, I just met her randomly and it was, two weeks before an open tryout for the team. And she's like, come try out. And I'm thinking, I don't know, but um, <laughs> I, I knew I was in good enough physical shape. I didn't know if my football acumen and my football skills were really good enough. Um, but I thought, what the, what the heck? And I think part of it for me was redemption for the way my gymnastics career ended. Cause it really didn't end on a high note. Um, and it really, like I said before, it was very high, high, low lows, 
And I would say it ended more on a low and that just doesn't, uh, it didn't sit well with me after all those years. I mean, that's yeah, roughly 20, 20, 20, 20 years, years, 20 years. And Man, so I I wanna, thought, I'm curious how you use that fire for the last <laughs> 20 years, but you can stay with football. Go, keep yeah. going with that. Well, I think that's just it. It's like, okay, I'm not getting any younger. Um, I love this game. I would really, I just want to know what it's like to play. I want to know what it's like to tackle somebody. I, you know, I just was like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, I, 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 for two weeks, actually, I got with a personal trainer and I was like, here's what I'm going to do in two weeks. Can you help me? And um, he had played football in college too. So, man, I was you know, I was doing as much as I could in those two weeks to just, you know, catch the ball, throw the ball, whatever I could do. Well, it, I mean, it paid off. I got, I got to the tryout. I made it through the tryout. They invited me back to their mini camp. Uh, I made it through that. And then you have to make it through the hell day. And I made it through hell day. And, um, you know, I played for three seasons. And it was, I have to tell you, it's one of the greatest experiences of my, my life. Um, and now I work with the team on, you know, doing their mental skills um, and drink therapy and mental skills. Um, and it's just a joy to be able to be a part of really a movement now that's really gaining a lot of momentum as we are an elite league of the WNFC now. And um, it's much more selective. Um, these, these gals are absolutely tremendous athletes and a lot of them came from playing collegiate sports and I, you know, yeah, I had to do, I did extra work physically and I did extra work mentally to be able to chase down wide receivers, half my age. <clears throat> um, cause I was mostly strong safety and free safety. Um, I, I've played a little bit of outside weak side, which I liked a whole lot better, but, um, I just really wasn't big enough. Um, and so I played mostly as a, a DB and so I really had to take care of myself. I was very, very, very disciplined with my food, my nutrition, my training, um, my supplementation, my sleep, uh, cause I knew that age was not on my side. Um, and I was able to do fairly well for those three seasons. What did you learn about yourself going through that process? Oh, gosh, that you can do anything you set your mind to. I think it actually did a lot more for my confidence than almost anything, um, just personally. Um, and I think that, you know, I think it I, – I, I can look back on my gymnastics career and not have as much, I guess you could say regret on how it ended and what I experienced and what I learned, because definitely I used those stories and used the difficulty of that time period with what I do now. Um, but then having an experience where I can say, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I overcame some of my weaknesses, so to speak. Um, I mean, nothing, Nothing is greater than that. Whatever it is that you do, I think when you can overcome and learn something and your character gets better, your, your mentality gets better, your, you know, whatever those character issues are, um, that's a good thing. That's a sweet thing.
So cool. Very, very inspiring and awesome to hear. And here's, I'm not 40 yet. So maybe I'll, I'll play some kind of professional sport when I'm 40. Well, <laughs> pray, I, pray for me, Kip. Pray for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I will. <laughs> it, it's, it, you know, I think, you know, age is just a number. And I know Dara Torres used that as the title of her book. And, um, but I always felt that way. Like I never have felt my age, but I've also done the work to try to not, not in an, not in an attempt to stay young, but it's just, I feel better about myself when I'm not putting crap in my body. And when I maintain this lifestyle of like working out, and I think that's really what keeps us young. And I, and it's what enabled me to keep up with my kids as they got older. And, and I think too, as a parent, we got to role model that, right? They are watching. I just actually stumbled upon a blog post that my daughter wrote about that time period where she watched me play football and I had no idea what she really thought about it, but I'm reading this and I'm like, you know, I'm like, Ooh, that that's pretty amazing. I didn't really realize that she was watching that closely or that intently um, about what I was doing and how hard it was actually at the time. I want to just go back to some of the, the dark, the dark times. Um, and it's really awesome to start there and sort of think about how the dark times impacted the bright times. And you talked about the body images and being a mm -hmm. gymnast and them weighing you. Uh, mm -hmm. But I also know you were actually suicidal, um, I mm -hmm. think, at the age of 15. Yep. And so I'm curious to get your perspective on what that time was like for you and uh, just to share and, and share your perspective on it. Sure. Um, yeah, that was, I would say, right kind of smack dab in the in the middle of uh, a period of time where I was restricting my caloric intake and I about the same height I am now, I'm about five four. Uh, I was about eighty eight pounds, which is not that's not good. Um, and growing up, I had a very uh, tumultuous relationship with my mom, and that actually had a lot. That was probably a majority of the impact um, I would say on how I felt about myself what I believed about myself. Um, my mom's a very critical person. She's very negative. Um, and I watched her like demean herself and her body. And so I thought that was normal as a woman. I, I just thought like you hate yourself, you know, um, and you ridicule yourself. And she was very verbal about it. Um, and then once I got away from that, I realized, mm, that is not good. Um, but at 15, it just was dark. I was not doing well at my beloved sport. Um, I was struggling some academically. Uh, my mom is a very, um, she was very extroverted. She was very involved in a lot of things and president of this and active in that. And I was not. And so that's where we had a lot of tension and she couldn't understand why I just wanted to do gymnastics. And that became a tension. Uh, and so, yeah, I got to a place where I thought, yeah, I, 
I don't want to keep living. This is too hard. I don't want to do this. Um, and I'm tired. Of, I know I was very tired of the conflict that I had with my mom. Um, and I wrote in my journal, I actually still have the journal too. I wrote in my journal what I was going to do because I had this bar in my room and I had the rope. Now I was ready to do it. And then um, I, this is just divine intervention, but I thought, well, maybe, and I don't know where that thought came from other than it has to be divine, but you know, I saw the, the Bible that I got in fifth grade from church, right? It just, that gold Bible would just sitting over there. And so I just grabbed it and I opened it, you know, where you just kind of open it and you look at it. And, um, and I opened it to Philippians and it's one of two places where the apostle Paul is actually at that point. He's very depressed and he's like, I don't want to live. I'd rather die and be with Christ for that is better. And I'm reading that going, yeah, exactly. That is what I'm about to do. But then I, I kept reading and he goes on to talk about God's love and that there's a purpose for him being there and that the people in the church of Philippi, okay, we're supposed to work together and, and I, as I kept reading, it was like, focus on these things, focus on what is good and what is right and what is pure. And I, and I was like, okay, I don't really understand what just happened, but it was the first time in my life where I felt like God loves me and there's some sort of purpose as to why I'm here. I don't have any idea what it is, but there's some reason why I'm here. And so I chose not to do it. Have you ever had any ideas like that since that day? Oh, sure. And how do you exactly why I'm here? <laughs> oh, let yeah. me, uh, sorry. Have you had any of the suicidal thoughts though? No. Um, since that day? No. So, no. so what do you think transformed for you? I think it was a very dynamic spiritual experience because I do believe that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. We're not physical having a spiritual experience. Um, because it's a temporary, this, this life is so temporary. It's so short. And the older I get, the more I, I realize that too. And, um, yeah, I've been through a lot of dark times since then. Um, but I've never gotten to that place where I thought I'm going to check out. Mm -mm. Because I did feel like whatever I'm going through, like, and I've been through like being hit by a car and almost killed to um, my daughter almost dying at childbirth to divorce to not knowing where I was going to live and trying to take care of two kids. And so those are all dark moments or times, but I always believe there was a purpose and a reason. And I just got to keep walking in my story. You just keep walking. I can't stop difficulty. I can't stop challenge problems from happening. There's going to be death. There's going to be loss. There's going to be challenges, but I can change the way I respond to them. And I, and I think I learned that in that one experience and, and that just really stuck with me. Sounds like such a watershed moment for you. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing story. And thanks for sharing. I'm sure even 
going back to that place of despair uh, probably brings up some emotion for you. Um, it does, especially like as it relates to my mom. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. You also, it, religion uh, mm -hmm. is, is a guiding compass for you. Mm -hmm. And I know you, you got a seminary degree. Yeah. And so I'd love to just unpack how religion has guided you and, and how you think about your spirituality and what mm -hmm. sort of framework you use for that. Well, I like to say I'm religious about football, but I have a personal <laughs> relationship with Jesus. Um, so yeah, it is very important to me. And I, I think it really uh, started to be important to me at that moment in time. Um, I mean, my parents, you know, we went to church I, and I heard about, you know, the stories of Jesus and the stories of the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff. But I really didn't understand it um, until, uh, really until I was in college and did much more of a personal study and a pursuit of it. Um, and that's when certainly I got introduced to other faiths which kind of confused me. Like I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, like I knew other faiths existed right in high school, but I never really studied them or what's different. Um, and I think really for anybody that, that is an important pursuit, like go pursue it, ask your questions, dig in, figure out what um, you believe in. And so when I did that, I, yeah, I, I felt like the body of evidence was there that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he did. And, um, and so, yeah, I chose, chose Christian faith and Christ as my savior. Now, I don't beat people over the head with the Bible or with religion um, because I do think it's a, a personal decision and a personal pursuit, but I'm very open to talk about it, as you can tell. And in my personal experience with that, um, and even some of the tools <clears throat> that I've created in terms of even what I just explained in my own story and in, in my own experience, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is all over the Bible. <laughs> it's like you got to change the way you think. You got to change what you do to get a different result. And so, yeah, there are concepts that I pull from that. And I do believe that God has a better handle on human nature than man-made psychology or philosophy. But that took a lot of reading and studying and discerning um, I, to figure out that for me and to kind of create solid principles um, that I use in my practice all the time. The Greeks said that strength is mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And you gave us some examples, some very real adversity that you went through throughout your life. What are you intentionally doing to strengthen your mental, your emotional, your physical, your spiritual? What are, what are some of the practices that, that you do to intentionally set your mind? Um, I am very anal <laughs> about my morning routine. Um, so first thing in the morning, um, I drink my water <laughs> and then I, um, I'm looking at scripture. I don't spend a lot of time, but it's the first thing I do. Um, 
I just got done doing a study on the book of Elijah or on the life of Elijah. And wow, um, just digging into that was very powerful. And I would have to say it really affected what I do next, which is my prayer life. Uh, Do my prayers. I send a verse off to my kids. uh, And then I meditate. Um, And that meditation can be a, it can be just instrumental meditation, or it can be a guided meditation of some kind. Um, and that beginning process is kind of what I, I think it's very important that you generate and decide your mindset for the day. Um, and so I'm very disciplined about that. Um, I work out, I have a clean breakfast, then I jump into whatever work has for me for the day, but I don't look at email. I don't start scrolling. I don't do any of that until I've kind of taken care of my mind and body and spirit to set the tone for today to, to, I love the word generate because I think we have more intention and ability to, to create the day we want rather than just going through the motions and let the day kind of dictate the kind of mood we want. No, you go generate the mood, the day, the impact that you want to have. And I think that's super important. And that fits with my personal mission statement, which I also say to myself every morning, which is to impact, educate, and influence whoever God puts in front of me. So it works whether it's with my kids, it's with you, it's with the Target checkout lady. You know, it doesn't matter who I'm engaged with. I try to be intentional, whether it's just eye contact and a smile. How many times do you go to a grocery store and there you just go through the line and you don't even look up at the person, right? Or say hi or call them by their name. And uh, so I, I tend and try to be more intentional about that sort of stuff. How do you do all that when you are tired or you are not at your best or you're a single mom raising two kids and <laughs> yeah. you know, like a lot going on, a lot of stress. Cause I think a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, well, when I'm, when I'm good, like I can tap into that. But how, how do you handle that when you're, when you're in your not so great place or space? Well, Um, if I told you I was perfect about it, I'd be a liar. So I'm not going to tell you that. Um, yeah, certainly, especially during the years when I was, there was a period of time there where I was working four different jobs and, you know, taking care of my two kids. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't always get every single piece of that routine into my morning routine. Um, but I would get it in at some point during the day. Uh, you know, sometimes the workouts were kind of what fluctuated between morning and evening. Um, but those pieces might even take 10 minutes on some mornings where you're doing it rather quickly, but you're still intentional about your mindset. Or it, you know, Sundays I got three hours, four hours where I can do that same routine. And, and so it would fluctuate. Um, But part of it, too, was including my kids in some of that um, and teaching them those those particular habits. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I'm not perfect about it. 
Uh, it's definitely easier now that I'm an empty nester because it is just me. And so I, I can't tell you a day I've missed, right? I, it, is a, it is a very religious practice, so to speak, for me now because there's nobody and nothing per se vying for my attention. Um, but early on when I, and, and it kind of has evolved too into kind of what it is today. Um, but I always had us be intentional about you set your mind for today uh, with what you know you got going on. And that planning happened the night before too. That's an important part of it. Um, and being the brain code that likes to plan, yes, this is where it becomes effective, <laughs> but not so much on the football field. And you have a daughter who's a triathlete and a son who yep. plays, plays football at the division two level. Yeah. And I'm curious as a parent, what did you watch and observe and notice uh, parenting uh, two athletes? Well, uh, just like one style of parenting doesn't work with every kid. It's what I tell coaches. One style of coaching doesn't work with every kid either. Um, and I, I luckily had the experience to coach both of them too. Um, they're two very different kids. And I really had to, um, that intention with each of them looked very different. Um, my daughter had much more, she's much more motive. <laughs> and, um, and so even just working on emotional control with her was super important as she pursued her goals and faced fears and was trying different things. Um, and with my son, yeah, actually he and I had a great conversation last night about a challenge he's going through with his coach and he is all, he loves to win. He is that guy that wants to win and he is that guy that wants to be competent and adequate and he wants to be a part of the team. And my daughter, you know, they're just, they're different. And I think you've got to recognize the differences in your kids and address them. My son early on had a huge fear factor. He's very introverted. And about, this is probably about eight or nine years old. And we're waiting in the airport. And that's a busy place, right? A lot of people, a lot of motion, a lot of activity. And he's like, mom, I'm hum hungry. Can I have a can, can you get me a sandwich over there? And I handed him $10 and I said, you can go get it. Oh my God. The terror that washed over his body was insane. Like he stood there next to me and I could see his little body shaking. And he was like, no, no, no. And he's arguing with himself for a good 10 minutes because he didn't want to go over there by himself and get the sandwich. Um, but eventually he did because he knew I wasn't going to do it. And I'm like, you're going to be fine. I'll watch you. You can go do it. And that one experience gave him so much confidence. But I see parents all the time, if their kid's nervous about something or more introverted, they don't, they protect them from simple tasks like that. When that's exactly what they need in order to be able to learn how to speak, look somebody eyeball to eyeball, tell them what you want have the exchange and, and that's building that little guy's confidence, you know? It's really hard. Uh, it's cause we want to help our kids and 
So it's hard for us to take a step back and really think about well, what would be helpful for them because it would be easier for you oh. to just go get the sandwich <laughs> for him. It's easier. Right. It's right. just flat out easier. And a lot of times parents are tired and they don't, they're, they're not always thinking about, oh, my kid does watch everything and I do have to be intentional. So sometimes they'll go to the path of least resistance and mm -hmm. myself included um, instead of going toward what might be best for their kid. And so for me, that's a big takeaway, which is always thinking about, well, what's best for my child and what's best for my child might not always be what's best for me or what's easiest for me. And, and that's it never will really be hard. It's really difficult. Yeah. It's really difficult. Well, it's very difficult. And then here, here's my, here's my thing. And I, and I, I don't know where this came from, but I always like, you know, you mentioned about being tired and I'm like, what does being tired have to do with you giving your best to your family? Nothing. Well, I mean, you, you gotta show up yeah. and you gotta be your best with them as much as you are at work. Oh, for sure. I, I think, um, my point in saying that is exactly the same as what the point you're making, which is yeah. just because we're tired or we're not at our best doesn't mean that we can't give a hundred percent of whatever we've got. Right. And so we might be at 75% or might be on little sleep, but we can still give a hundred percent of whatever we've got. And the, I think it's the same thing for an athlete who, um, you know, is on a couple hours of sleep to your point. Uh, they still need to give whatever they've got and whatever you got. Right. And have some compassion because it sounds like some of the challenges you ran into with your mom was the lack of compassion and, yeah. you know, a lack of understanding that you weren't going to be the busy bee that she was in the same way. And so right. like being that critic all the time, if that's the way you're going to handle it, it's going to wear you down and burn you out and tire you out. And so even having some self-compassion to notice, like, Right now, we're having this conversation. The Washington Nationals just won the World Series. I'm tired. I'm <laughs> right. flat out tired. Right, Didn't right. get a whole lot of sleep last night. Um, man, baseball playoffs, you don't get a whole lot of sleep throughout the whole thing, and I'm not even playing. <laughs> and I'm not even, I'm not even associated with the organization. I'm just watching, and it's torture. Right. And I'm tired right now. So maybe this conversation isn't my best of whatever, whatever my potential yeah, is and that right. I ever always have, but that's okay. I need right. to give whatever I've You're got. You're still giving your best. Yeah, it's whatever I've yeah. got. And we look at some of the best performances of all time. Brett Favre after his dad passes away. Michael Jordan in, in, in his flu game. Um, there was a guy, Torrey his Smith. Game, yeah, yeah Torrey Smith for the Baltimore Ravens had his best game um, on a Monday, Monday night after his brother was killed. Like right. We can produce amazing outcomes if we focus on giving a hundred percent of whatever we've got. And there have been times where I have been at my best when I'm not at my best because of my focus and because of setting yeah. my mind to being that way. So that's a big yeah. takeaway for me is for my kids, like never making an excuse and always going toward, well, what can I do rather than what can't I do because of where I'm currently at and managing and locating. All right, maybe I am a little below where I need to be. Let's manage it. And then let's, let's approach it with some compassion and some sense of, all right, you're not at your best, give whatever you got today. And that should be enough. And, and, yeah. and for all of us, I think that's, that's a good takeaway. I want to end with sports psychology and yeah. really understanding. It sounds like you have this passion for faith and, you know, studying religion. Why go towards sports psychology uh, and why use this as your vehicle to make an impact and to be mission minded? Uh, well, I guess it's just kind of that 
you know, all the different influences of my life kind of create, create a, um, I don't know what you call it. I, I hate to say identity, but you know, identity gets played out in the roles that I have, but it's not who I am. So who I am, I love what my daughter says. She's like, I am the daughter of a star breather. And I'm like, yes, I love that. And so I, I think taking the different experiences, taking the training, taking my own passion for sports, um, it just seemed like the logical niche and, and what I love. I think when you do what you love, it's not like work and work has never felt like work to me in terms of serving my clients and helping them. And God, there is no greater joy than being able to see a young person or even one of my executive clients um, achieve what they've set out to achieve that outcome but even more so is just the process of watching them transform and change uh towards that achievement uh and so it just was a, a natural fit there's actually um you know i think like i said before i think god's got a good handle on um the anthropology of man and so taking that with sports, with counseling, therapy, high performance coaching, it just was an easy fit to work with athletes. But I do a lot with coaches and teams, executives. It's, you know, those same performance principles, it doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom, they, they're important there too, just like we've been talking about with parenting. Awesome. I think that's a great place for us to stop. I'd love for you to let people know where they can find you on social media, find you online. If they're interested in, in learning more about the work that you do, uh, where can they do all that? Yeah. The easiest place on any social media is Kip Fit, K-I-P-F-I-T, Instagram. Um, that is Coach Kip Fit on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then my website is braincodecorp.com, B-R-A-I-N, code, C-O-D-E, corp, C-O-R-P. And um, you can see the different services that I have. Um, you can get in touch with me. It's a direct line, direct email straight to me. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. And I'm glad you mentioned LinkedIn because I actually have really enjoyed being on LinkedIn and uh, yeah. occasionally posting stuff on there, but I like consuming a lot of what's on LinkedIn. Um, and I find, you mentioned the niche of sports psychology. I find LinkedIn to be a nice niche place to, to get quality content. So uh, yeah. you can go over there. My, I guess my handle is Brian Levinson. Uh, Kip, this has been really fascinating. I learned a lot about brain coding, which I was pretty ignorant to. I learned a lot about your perspective and, uh, gymnastics and dealing with mental health and, uh, even learned a lot about parenting and, uh, you know, holding me accountable to some of the standards that I set for my clients and for myself at work that hopefully I can bring to my house as well. So thank you for shining a light on this world and thanks for being you. Well, thanks for having me on, it's been great. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. 
Here is this week's episode gem. Um, and so I'm very disciplined about that. Um, I work out, I have a clean breakfast. Then I jump into whatever work has for me for the day. But I don't look at email. I don't start scrolling. I don't do any of that until I've kind of taken care of my mind and body and spirit to set the tone for the day. 